Hi everyone, this is Anne Doherty, and on this episode of Current, I'm thrilled to be joined by Illum's very own Dr. Alex Dunn, director at our company, and Aaron Ellingham, a managing consultant. Between the two of them, their work spans the fields of cognitive linguistics and behavioral economics, two bodies of work that, when taken together, really help to paint a picture of how we can better understand our customers and those we aim to serve. So the idea for this podcast actually came up after a presentation to our team by Erin Ellingham, uh, one of our uh, participants today, where she talked about cognitive biases and specifically a concept in behavioral economics known as the hidden cost of free. And one of the first thoughts we had when Erin was uh, presenting this to our team was, you know, what is the impact of these um, forms of bias and these principles on non-participant behavior. How do we define it? How do we engage people and, and really move them to participate? And what, um, what do we need to do to make sure that we're enlisting more people in the cause to uh, reduce their energy use, but also receive the benefits of all these public investments? So um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce um, our panelists today, our participants. Um, so first, um, I'll start with Dr. Alex Dunn. Alex holds a PhD in Cognitive Linguistics from the University of California, Santa Cruz. She has well over a decade of applied research experience, most of which are in the in energy industry and working with our utility clients at Illum. Alex excels at leading large-scale research projects for utilities states and other national stakeholders in areas such as rate design, midstream market transformation, and marketing assessments. And with, um, with Alex is Erin, Erin Ellingham. Erin um, holds a master's degree in English and comparative literature from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she's worked with utilities and energy efficiency organizations across the United States and in Australia on customer outreach and experience, stakeholder engagement, rate design and program evaluation. She draws on her background in communications and social and market research and expertise in behavioral economics, having collaborated on multiple New York Times bestselling books on behavioral economics, um, authored by Dan Ariely. Welcome to the podcast, Alex and Erin. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks, really great to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you guys here today. Um, we have so much to talk about, so I think we should just go ahead and jump right in. So first, uh, I'm going to start with a broad question for both of you to do a little bit of level setting for our audience who may or may not be as familiar with these topics as um, you are and those of us at Illum. Um, so how do we, as an industry, try to understand non-participation? What, what are we thinking about? It's, I think for me, uh, it's, it's really about thinking about customers not engaging with energy efficiency or environmental programs, but it also, that doesn't cover it well enough for me either. It's, it's kind of, I think that's, that is the root issue. Like we say non-participants, but does that really mean that, that people are choosing not to participate as in they're aware and they're but they're just choosing not to. And, and rather, I think that there's something more to it than that. So not only are they not engaging, but I think it's uh, a deeper trying to understand, and hence why this, this conversation is happening, trying to understand who non-participants are and what might be driving them to, to not even maybe be aware or think this is a possibility for them. 
But at its core, it's not engaging with programs. That's an interesting concept, just to underscore it. What you're saying, Alex, is that non-participation sort of implies choice mm -hmm. by the participant or would-be participant, but what you're saying is, well, in many cases, the choice isn't there. They're yeah. not either aware of it or it's not an option. So this is Erin, and I was thinking about that kind of in a similar way that uh, from a perspective of behavioral economics where we think about defaults a lot, non-participation sets up like a tacit default where participation is the standard or the typical thing to do, which is not really the case. So then we start thinking about non-participation as more of an outlier, which um, I think we know that broadly it's not. But I think just taking a step back, I think I'll just keep calling it non-participation is really puzzling especially for those of us who spend our time and our lives designing and marketing efforts that are intended to reach and benefit customers. And it just seems like all of the reason and, and rationale and, you know, utility would lead us to say, or lead our customers to say that this is a great idea, this will benefit me. Um, but then, you know, we look at them and scratch our heads and say, why aren't you participating in this? And I think what we're really talking about here is that I find it helpful sometimes to have a name for things and at the risk of being a little jargony. Um, I think what we get into here and especially in residential energy is what's referred to as either a value action gap or a knowledge action gap where basically people, you know, intrinsically value something or know that something's important, but that doesn't, that doesn't actually translate to action or behavior. And this particular, this becomes a real problem as information is more complex and the decision is more complex. And so just understanding like what you're trying to overcome, I think is really important. Such a great um, perspective and a, a good reminder to ourselves as practitioners, but also to the industry that sometimes more information is not necessarily going to result in more action because you are dealing with these inherent gaps. And I think it's worth kind of building on this a little more. Uh, Alex, from a cognitive um, psychology perspective, what barriers do you see being most attributed to non-participants and uh, how, how might we explain that? I think um, from a, like a cognitive science, cognitive psychological perspective, to me, I think in a broad way, the main barrier to non-participation is that we think fast. And this kind of builds on what Aaron's talking about. If if we take Daniel Kahneman's um, term that he created and, and thinking about this thinking fast versus thinking slow, <clears throat> it's a useful way to think about, uh, about non-participation. So if you're thinking generally, there's two kind of ways of of thinking in the world and how we traverse it. And one is deep and rational. We think about things slowly. Um, and then the other way is shallow and fast. And and we're not thinking as much, we're acting a lot more. Um, and that's where all the biases come through. But uh, the reality is, is that as particularly we in the industry, we like to think that people are thinking slowly. Um, we build programs based on people thinking slowly. Um, but the reality is we, we're not. Uh, we spend a lot of time in, in that thinking fast frame. <clears throat> and so what that means within energy efficiency is that people aren't 
thinking about energy consumption. They're not thinking about their behaviors to lower energy costs. Like energy efficiency programs are just not that important to them in any way. We're not making it salient to pull them into that thinking slow place. To me, um, even though when we don't talk about this within a kind of a traditional frame from a cognitive perspective, this is the biggest thing. Just to kind of follow up on that, Alex, and the thinking slow, thinking fast framework, you mentioned that we don't really do a good job of pulling people into thinking slow, but I want to ask this a different way. Do they need to think slow about these things? Are we, are we in effect creating barriers by trying to move them into a different frame when we might otherwise be using thinking fast frameworks to motivate action? Yeah, that's actually kind of the the best way of putting it. You know, if we can nudge people to do to take action while they're thinking fast, so that we're not trying to pull them in, is a great way of doing things. And and one of the best ways of doing that is is using defaults and and priming people, pushing them in the right way, and designing spaces. Uh, there have been some really great research studies on on if you design spaces for recycling um, in a certain way and you nudge them a certain way, then they will just do that behavior without thinking about it. <clears throat> and and that's, uh, that's a more challenging thing when we are talking about energy efficiency programs that don't have like a space associated with it, but taking that ethos and, and thinking, yeah, let's figure out how we can get people to think a little less, but do the work, um, you know, take the actions. It's a, a challenge, but something worthy of thinking through. That's really interesting to, to kind of think around. Uh, one of my earlier, well, my first career in applied research was specifically in serving Fortune 100 companies and thinking about how you manage space to the advantage of, you know, companies like Procter and Gamble or Best Buy. And for lots of reasons, quickly left that space. But um, but there was a lot of um, energy and investment and engineering, the, the built environment, as well as messaging specifically to encourage those kinds of um, behaviors. Erin, you know, um, behavioral economics is an area that you very much uh, have specialized in over the years and uh, bring that expertise to a loom. Uh, what do you think about behavioral economics? What frameworks might explain non-participation? Yeah, just to pick up on what you were both talking about first, um, in terms of the, you know, thinking fast and slow and wh which space we want people to be in. One thing that we certainly can do without kind of trying to push people in either space is at least help streamline the decisions that will have to be made. If you think about, say, a menu at a restaurant, you've, you know, you've seen, um, the ones that are 40 pages long and, you know, they're divided in really weird ways into like cuisine and, you know, ways of cooking and you're just completely flummoxed. You have no idea what to do. And then you go to one where they start with, you know, three options, burrito, tacos, bowl, and then you choose your filling and then you choose what you want on it. And that experience is so different. And I think one thing that I see when I kind of, um, take in the landscape is a lot of times we there's more of the the first kind of menu there's like a lot of options that are kind of maybe strangely bundled together or not and you don't know what you qualify for and you know what would be helpful to you and of course there's like the on-ramp of the energy audit but i think just thinking about how those decisions can be made easier is something that um that i think is really important 
for increasing participation because people just shut down when there's too many options and it's too hard to compare them. It's actually, just to build on that a little, what I think is so cool about that is, is to really think through, you know, that second menu where you're like thinking burrito, you're thinking higher order thing, and then the details beneath it is very much how we think, like that's how we make decisions, um, as opposed to trying to like give all the details at once. And and what you're talking about then is is not just about say um, overloading them with choices, but then also mirroring how we make decisions. And I don't know if our programs do that well. That's such a good point. There's a way in which I think our industry has always framed choice from the perspective of those that are implementing. You know, this is a residential program or this is a commercial program, and and within that, thinking about end uses, whereas the customers. Um, to play on the metaphor, burrito might be very different. <laughs> and yeah. so how do we then identify what the burrito is? Right. That's so thing. what's the burrito paradigm? I mean, so if you think about it, maybe it's like, well, I just feel cold in the winter. How can, how can we work on that? Just working experientially from their day-to-day -day versus like more of a top-down um, so to get back to your original question, Anne, of some, <laughs> some ways that non-participation uh, is framed in behavioral economics, there's obviously a lot of things to talk about. And there's a lot of research actually in um, energy reduction and sort of participation energy efficiency programs in general, but a few, I think, really key concepts to touch on. And one that's familiar to probably everyone to some extent is loss aversion and this, as you know, most of us know and have experienced, is a tendency just to be more afraid of losses um, and be more motivated by potential losses than gains. And people hear this and it kind of makes sense, but research generally shows that a gain needs to be twice what a loss would be in order to be equally motivating. So when we think about um, efficiency programs, what, how we frame them, whether it's a gain or a loss, can be really important. Um, another one that I think we really underestimate is something called the status quo bias, which is very simply, you know, the tendency to really favor the status quo or what is, and whether that's sticking to a default or even deferring decision-making entirely, which is, you know, a form of inertia. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this really increases as the amount of complexity, the amount or complexity of information increases. and and a really interesting, I won't go too far afield in this, but an interesting study on energy, basically they presented a bunch of people with six different um, energy options to choose from with varying levels of reliability and price and just said artificially, randomly, you're coming in at this level of reliability and price. What would you change your program to? And in both cases, whether they were low high cost or low cost, they, 60% of people chose their default. So people rationally would have maybe wanted something that was less expensive or more reliable, but they just stuck with what they were given just completely artificially and randomly. And so thinking about that in terms of what people are choosing day to day, whether to upgrade their home or upgrade their lights, like what is already there is you know, something people tend to just say, I, it's, it's good, I'm fine with this. 
That's really interesting. Um, it reminds me of a recent article that if you haven't read, is worth reading um, specifically um, about this and choice engineering that Wired Magazine put out um, with respect to orchestrating defaults in such a way that you, consumers are increasingly nudged toward making irrational decisions. And I thought they, they brought forward some really interesting examples of how that's done. Um, of course, their framing was more pessimistic in the sense of, you know, <laughs> sort of the, the removal of consumer choice, but, uh, but you could see how that could be used to the advantage of um, pro-social behavior, pro-environmental um, behaviors, particularly if the cost of the consumer is, is low. Um, one thing I wanted to follow up on that um, you didn't exactly touch on, but I think is worth talking about, which is um, the cost of free. The, um, you know, our industry likes to give things away and we often give um, a number of different discounts and rebates to try to motivate people, um, you know, moving toward a very rational economic model. Um, but we know from behavioral economics that, as you were saying, that doesn't always work. So, um, Talk to me a little bit about the cost of free and, and how we might think about that in this context. Yeah, it's a really interesting question and free is a very powerful signal, but it's also a really strange price for people to try to understand. And of course, sometimes people get irrationally excited by it. There's a lot of research into it that I won't get into, but if you've ever driven by um, Ben and Jerry's on free cone day and seen a line that's, you know, around the block twice, you, you can see in real time how people can respond to the price of free. Um, but then when it comes to something like an energy efficiency program, it's a completely different animal. And I think there it tends to violate social and market norms. So, and the conventional logic that you can't get something for nothing, no such thing as a free lunch, that sort of thing that we're kind of imbued with since you know, early ages. So if you think about a social and a market norm, like imagine showing up at your friend's dinner party instead of with a bottle of wine with a $20 bill back when there were dinner parties, you would never do that because that's such a clear violation of a social norm. Yeah. But if you look at it from the perspective of a free, you know, free weatherization, when that that violates the same norm. When do you get something for free? And of course it brings about the attendant kind of suspicion of, is this low quality? You know, what am I actually getting here? Because you would never walk into a Home Depot and say, can you show me to the free section? Um, what do you have in the range of free? Because obviously you just know that when you're getting something for your home, a light bulb, you know, whatever it is, there's a cost associated with it. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance around it being free. And of course, you know, taking the time to explain how programs work and why it's free and that sort of thing is a, can be a bit of a cognitive overload as well. So I, it's just a really tough price point to offer in the marketplace. It's interesting um, too to take that thinking and then pair that with some of your discussion earlier on defaults and thinking about how we might be able to, you know, sort of use those to to um, bring about the behaviors we're looking to change without asking the consumer to go through what you've described as this um, kind of difficult exercise of understanding what is actually being offered to them. 
There's something you touched on in your example about Ben and Jerry's that I want to explore and um, admittedly kind of going a little off to the side on this, but I think it's important, um, which is uh, the sort of the idea of the free cone. Um, partially it's, you know, people are used to getting free food, one, you know, it's, it's part of sort of the experience of, of food, but, um, but also like who has permission to provide free things because Ben and Jerry's is also a beloved brand and it's yeah. a trusted brand and it has a loyal Absolutely. following and people um, see it as this again pro-social brand that is doing the right thing um, environmentally in terms of the quality of its ice cream and then also it's sort of fun and playful brand image so I wonder if there's something there as well like who gets to um, engage in these social exchanges and these norms yeah, uh, trust was definitely something I imagine coming back to later in the podcast, but that is, that's a heuristic that people make decisions by all the time. What, knowing nothing else, do I trust this thing, this person, this entity, and then I will accept it. So that's, you're exactly right that um, the, the person or entity offering the free thing is critically important. I mean, don't take candy from strangers. So, um, but do take it from Ben and Jerry. So I think they're, um, and we do that in our work, helping utilities and other organizations try to build trust. And that's a huge undertaking, a really heavy lift, but it's really critical, I think, for the uptake in particular of free programs. Alex, is there anything that you'd like to add to this? Yeah, I think you know what this conversation about you know say ben and jerry's and the brand that they have and the trust that they have it's 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 also about the service they provide and um that people think of it as like this treat but utilities have a really rough go of this in a lot of ways a because they're often a natural monopoly and so they they automatically engender this this idea of distrust like we must monitor you because you're out to to get money but then there's this other part which is that that people because electricity in particular but energy generally is more invisible um and we have these end uses and and they work um you know in the united states like our grid is i know we have outages and and things like that but it's really reliable and so that means that it works um and that can then make it feel like this is a right uh, that this is something to core to some to what I should have in my life, and um, and that can lead then to this kind of frustration that you pay for it. <clears throat> so in this sense, it's like it's not a treat; it's a basic right, and and therefore when you get into this this trust paradigm and how people are viewing money and um, energy efficiency programs and those things, there's a whole lot of of I think like emotion and biases are that are coming in that that make utilities a very special case, and this is part of the reason I think why why energy efficiency programs and non participation is particularly a, a tough nut to crack because you can't just give out free cones that mm -hmm. wouldn't work at all, and and that's kind of what we've been trying to do for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that that was it. Yeah, I wonder if it, in some ways, as you describe it and elaborate on it more, it has this sort of snake oil effect in the sense of, you know, so I I already have this thing, but you're going to now bottle it and give it back to me. Um, there's lots of um, 
sort of, I feel like there's a whole Dr. Seuss book on this as well. But I think that it, um, it really does bring forward some of this like important um, uh, imagery and just the way that we, um, we work in our lives to make sense of, um, as Aaron has pointed out, the choices available to us and how much we are um, defaulting to um, all of these long-standing relationships we have that we're not even actively thinking about. Um, you know, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and reflect on this current moment. Um, I, there's so many things to say about 2020. Let's, let's just put that out there. But one of the, um, I think the most important things that we're seeing in our world today is um, pushing back on norms, pushing back on um, all of these uh, ways of um, engaging in the world that are not equitable and that do not serve people um, equally, uh, and particularly in black communities and um, communities that have been marginalized for, for many, many years in our country. You know, as we start to think about our own research efforts and we start to sort of contend with some of this and the ways that these things permeate our own work, um, we've been looking at a lot of activities that Illum has been doing, specifically research we've been doing with non-participants to really uncover why certain groups are, are or are not participating and how that relates to broader needs within the population. So for example, um, fundamental needs related to food and shelter um, and where energy efficiency relates to that. You know, one of our um, previous uh, podcasts and um, or perhaps it was a webinar really brought forward this idea of how do you think about energy efficiency when you are worried about whether or not um, you're going to survive your day you know and that there are these these things coming forward that are um, obviously much more um, salient and important in this moment um, so after that really heavy lead into this question um, I'd be curious to know how you think about what customers are really um, trading off, if you will, when they're thinking about um, energy efficiency and how non-participation intersects with issues of equity? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right about 2020. There's a lot to be said about <laughs> it. And I think that this one actually, the fact that we're talking so much about equity and privilege and discussing that I think is a huge one. And uh, <clears throat> within energy efficiency, I think if you think about all the ways generally for, for people who have the, the, the mental space and the privilege to be able to think through all the steps, how cognitively taxing that is for people. Mm -hmm. um, then you take that into the fact that you don't, as you said, you don't have to worry about like trying to make it through the day or their personal safety um, or trying to actually traverse life through a second language. Like mm -hmm. all of that added cognitive load means that it's just really hard to even want to participate and <clears throat> a good example of this and i think i think through that you can easily see why there's a large disparity of of who is participating and who is not participating but a good example of this is uh <clears throat> when we were doing a recent study um, of on non-participation and trying to figure out what was going on one of the things for limited english proficiency customers was that they even if they went through the initial pro program and it was translated into Spanish to have someone come into their home they would need to provide their own translator to do the audit and when you think about the burden that places on on the customer 
um, not just from you know the the fact of of letting someone into your home, but then also having to actually take an extra step that provides an even larger gap um, and and really does limit I think the service of these programs to the people that need them the most in some ways or who simply want them. So I think it is about in in my view cognitive load and also the privilege of not having that added load um, to then be able to pay attention when it gets hard. That's an excellent point. Um, Erin, do you have any thoughts on this that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I mean, I just think about it, um, and again, you're, the webinar you're referring to is great, and I think it sort of posits energy efficiency as being like more at the top of the hierarchy of needs. Um, and I just wonder if looking at it as energy efficiency even in the terminology predetermines that to some extent and whether it's really just the healthfulness and safety of your own home, which now more than ever is something that is important because we can't leave our houses a lot of the time, but um, just all the things that go into making homes a safe and comfortable and, you know, sanitary place that um, are, that I think actually, serve to move that concern down if you're thinking of it as a pyramid um, of that hierarchy of needs. So more fundamental is what I'm trying to say because people can't see what my hands are doing right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. No, it's a great point. And this was touched on uh, in a webinar we did shortly after we all started sheltering in place with um, our colleague Amanda Dwelly and uh, Dr. Ed Vine, who's been um, a long friend of Illum's, and we touched on sort of the need to link uh, efficiency and the, the work that we're doing with these more proximate and immediate concerns around health and, and public health and how important that is in this moment, especially as we begin to learn more about the role of COVID-19 and, and transmission and aerosols and HVAC and all these things. We also um, had a podcast with um, Lisa um, Aubert and um, Rihanna Johnson on the same topic, which is worth thinking about or checking out. You know, one of the things that um, that I want to kind of underscore and kind of bring it back a little bit to some of the other points that we were making earlier is that, you know, a lot of this speaks to like abandoning this framework of information only, like information as the mechanism for uh, adoption. Um, and sort of requires us to rethink that because there's so many implicit assumptions in that. If you educate people on the benefits, then they will act, that people lack education, that um, people uh, will prioritize it if only they knew, you know, and, and there's so much in a way condescension in that thinking, which is to say, you know, if only you just had more information, then you would do this, or if only you just, you know, um, really cared then you would take action. How do we um, start to subvert that? Um, and again, I recognize I'm going off script, but what would you say to, um, to a utility specifically around you know, getting away from that framework, that way of thinking? What would be the, the first thing you'd recommend they do? And I'll let either of you take that. Um, I'll, I'll start just to your point about information. Um, it's like when New York City mandated that nutrition facts needed to be on all menus. And a study several years later showed that people were ordering more caloric items off menus. <laughs> and 
you know, psychological reactants can come into play in that situation where you're telling people what they want or need and they actually just go further in the other direction. And I'm not sure that's at play here, but it's certainly something to think about realizing I'm just adding to your point of more information, not necessarily solving the problem. But I think it is a huge challenge because what you're, you're trying to be respectful and communicate openly and transparently to help people rationally make a decision that's in their best interest and what could possibly be wrong with that. But uh, to your point, it doesn't always work. Um, as far as moving away from that, I, uh, I think it's a really tough one. I think building trust is such an important, such an important thing for, for utilities to do. And, you know, it's not just Ben and Jerry's levels of trust. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of facets upon which you can build trust and it can be, you know, the expertise and experience. So basically it's trust that they are competent to do what they're setting out to do, or there's trust in, you know, people perceive them as open and honest and um, that they really are concerned for others or concerned for you, the, you the customer. And that's kind of more of an integrity-based trust. So how do you build your ethos with your customers so that they, it's a long shot to say, look to you as a partner in their life, but, you know, people are now looking toward health departments and things that they never used to look for, look toward for guidance. And that, of course, is brought about by, you know, strange circumstances, but stranger things have happened. So how can that relationship be built between customers and utilities? Just instead of foreclosing it as impossible, how, you know, what can be leveraged to build that more trusting relationship where this isn't such a spoon feeding of information, but it is more of a two-way relationship. I think that's such a great point. I loved the way you um, delineated these different forms of trust. And even just in naming them, you've called forward so many specific ways that um, that could be addressed and also kind of flagging ways that it can also be undermined. And so it's important to be you know, working across an organization in the, in, that, in the same direction across these different areas. Alex, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add to this? Yeah, I have so many thoughts. And I think in some <laughs> ways, <clears throat> um, I keep thinking about going back to how we design these programs. And there's this concept, the, the curse of knowledge, which is that once you know something, it's really hard to like unknow it. Um, and that means the people that are designing programs, the people that are implementing programs have all this knowledge and, and are also bought into the idea that this is an important thing. And, and so the, the tool that is most used is this, well, if we, if we give them information, they will come, or if we give them money, they will come. Um, <clears throat> and that simply is not capturing all of the savings that we need, certainly thinking about climate change and the, the things that we really need to do and work through. And I think some of that is, <clears throat> can be allayed by always keeping the customer in your heart. I know it sounds kind of fluffy, but, um, but that means talking and testing and really checking to be like, oh yeah, this isn't just it. Like that is not the only tool in our toolbox or those are not the only tools in our toolbox to, to address these issues. And I think being creative and being willing to take risks is a big part of this. And that, that gets me to my second point, which is that 
within our world, we do a lot of evaluation at Illum and, and um, when we're giving recommendations, sometimes they are limited by what a utility can do based on, you know, the regulations they have to adhere to. And, and so sometimes I think we get locked into the, the tools in our toolbox because we want to prove that that, that money, that, that effort made a change. Um, and, and some of these alternative ways are actually kind of, they're, they're less, you know, they're in that thinking fast way. Some of those tools are actually made in, if you design them well, no one's going to actually know that, that you have shifted people's thoughts or behaviors. And in that case, it's really hard to prove that that money is effective. So uh, I think we need to, to really have a profound, like, sit down and thinking of, well, what is this curse of knowledge doing to us and keeping us from, from thinking about creatively these tools that we should implement? How do we do this in a way that then we can, you know, find and, and it's not like we shouldn't evaluate. We absolutely should, but we should get creative about and thinking through a design that, that is evaluable, but still, you know, cutting edge. I love that. And I love the idea of the curse of knowledge. I feel like um, I run into that every time I go to a party and I explain what I'm doing. To people, <laughs> you <laughs> still do that. <laughs> I well, I, fortunately, being a business owner gives me a different sort of heuristic <laughs> as a way of like bringing forward an understanding of uh, what I do to people. But um, but yes, I'd still try. Um, I want to sit with um, another question here, and um, you know, put this out there to you all to to think about, you know. Um, there are um, all these different efforts right now as we continue to focus on equity to really reach the hard to reach. And we need to discuss some of the challenges with, with that. Um, I'm curious to know um, if you've had experiences with or seen any examples of well-intended action, but, um, but that ultimately backfired or suffered from some of the biases we're hoping to overcome by, with our actions. Um, are there ways to that we're undermining ourselves to put it another way. Yeah, I think um, there are. And, and um, <clears throat> actually there's some really good uh, examples of this uh, in some of the recent work we've done. And um, my colleague, Liz Kelly, our colleague Liz Kelly and I wrote a paper for ACEEE that really discussed kind of linguistics and translation um, because you know we like to nerd out on linguistics. And, and this is actually one of the areas particularly when you're talking about how to frame things um, and how to translate to be equitable. <clears throat> um, what we did was a benchmark study of, of different utility websites to see how they were translating content for Spanish speakers. And what we found was really interesting because at first, on first blush, it'd be like, oh, they're tailoring things and we like tailoring, right? This is the idea of not information overload. Um, what we found was that uh, a lot of utility websites, when they were not just Google translated, but actually properly translated, they were putting things in the forefront of the website that they thought were pertinent to Spanish speakers. And that meant low income programs, that meant bill assistance, um, and easier ways to pay. Um, <clears throat> what that ends up being is actually a false link between you know, race, ethnicity, language, and income. And 
it's something that I think is so easy to fall into. Like we fall into it all the time. This is something that is, again, we think fast and we find these different uh, <clears throat> connections between things. And this is a pervasive one because of all the history behind inequity um, and the constant kind of um, lack of income and things that, that our systemic racism has pulled us through. Uh, across time and in, in U.S. history, and and this can be the result where you're actually limiting uh, access to programs that will help people save money because you're trying to do the right thing and and give them what they might want. But is it really what they want or need? Was research done? Because if you did research with the Spanish speakers in there in that region, and they said yes, this is what I want, or this is what I want, uh, you know, no, I don't want this, and I'd really like to just see this first, then that that seems okay to me. But but when it's not done from research, when you're not taking that perspective from the customer directly, um, what you're falling into is a very pervasive bias in our in our line of work. That's so interesting to sit with that because, as you said, we we in the industry, but also uh, media in general, is moving towards this level of targeting that, by design, is precluding choice. Uh, and we, there have been so many studies just on media consumption and how we've um, we are engineering micro realities for ourselves. You know, and this is just an example of how uh, bias and um, and in some ways, possibly also racism are coming into play to service the shorthand for limiting choice in that way as well. And, and then the question becomes, how do we, how do we both uh, make decision making easier, right, to a lot of the points that we had earlier, removing some of those like sticky choices that, um, that take us off our path of making a decision um, without also um, narrowing what we get to choose from. So essentially making sure that everybody can choose a burrito or a taco, but once you choose it, it's easier for you to move down you know, the, the path. Um, so to co close, I want to ask Aaron, um, you know, are there any ways that you think that utility program administrators um, can overcome uh, these issues of non-participation and um, what else they might try considering as part of this? Well, I, to be honest, I haven't had a lot of time to think about this in particular, but I, I, I have been thinking about it, but in terms of um, looking at interventions and being really careful and thoughtful about them um, and how you try to motivate people. I was just thinking of an example where there was a daycare that was really struggling with parents coming in to pick up their kids on time. And what they did was say, okay, we're gonna charge you $10 every time you're late and parent, thinking that people would come on time. And suddenly parents were coming half an hour later, 60 <laughs> minutes late because they were paying for it. You know, they got their norms crossed and they were paying for it. And so I think what, we need to do is think about what really carefully about what we want to encourage and how to get people there and try to think really broadly about what could happen when we introduce a certain intervention. Um, so another colorful anecdote, I got a parking ticket yesterday and I was really annoyed at myself, but also the ticket. And I thought, I bet the city of Portland would really like me to pay this soon. How could they do that? if? And then I thought if they had 
a 24-hour window where I could pay half as much. I would 100% go and pay it. But as it stands, I'll probably wait a couple weeks, you know, maybe avoid it forever and end up with a huge ticket. But I just, I realize that that's not in the, the realm of energy efficiency, but maybe one of you can pick up on my strange train of thought, but just really, really carefully thinking about how creatively we can motivate people to, to adopt these things that we think are so normal and so obviously beneficial that to them are just another object on a shelf that is not familiar, that is maybe not comfortable. That's not something they would even consider on a basic day. I, I love thinking about it that way. And I also think um, to your point earlier, really thinking about all these hidden costs too that aren't really even directly related to the ask, but the hassle of having someone come into your home, the, the pain of getting it scheduled in the first place, you know, all of these things that, that detract from making it easy to do something that seems as straightforward as like weather stripping can somehow now become this burdensome activity with an ambiguous payoff. Um, Alex, is there anything you'd like to add in closing? Yeah, I think um, to me, <clears throat> I mean, maybe this is my bent and my bias, but but good solid research, I think really is the way that I'm seeing utilities and program administrators really take this on. And, and in some ways it, that is paired with this willingness to make mistakes. And that's hard for a utility. It's really hard for everyone, but a utility there, there feels like there's a big risk with that. But <clears throat> the innovating utilities that are doing this are designing you know, thinking it outside the box, then they're designing a study, they're testing it, um, and they do get it wrong sometimes, but then they adjust and move forward. I think that is actually one of the biggest, you know, elements to it. Mm-hmm. So test, uh, be innovative, be willing to to make some mistakes. Um, and, and I think that's where we're seeing the innovation, um, but doing the research to, to show it, keep that customer right there and with the research. Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, what consultancy doesn't want to end their podcast on that note? (laughs) (laughs) Willingness to be wrong. And research. And research, both. Both. Um, And both are really important, you know, and I think that, um, I think there's a lesson in just having empathy and and, um, a little compassion for ourselves as we're learning how to do this really hard work. You know, there are so many um, incredible practitioners sitting in the seats of, um, you know, within utility buildings or program administrators offices and trying to figure this all out and uh, just recognizing that there aren't perfect answers, but there are ways that we can make incremental improvements and move our, both our industry and our customers towards these um, sort of pro-environment, pro-climate um, actions is, I think, really important. Um, Alex and Erin, this was a really great conversation. Uh, I'm a little hungry now. I know what I'm going to have for dinner and dessert. Um, burritos. Thanks for <laughs> burritos and, and Ben and, and Jerry. Ice cream. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, with our audience. And I'm really excited to have part two of this conversation. So make sure that you um, start preparing for that because we're definitely going to have you back. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners for listening to another episode of Current. Current was created by Loom's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions, and we look forward to talking with you next time.